Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And this is our 101st episode of Ale Saga. Yes, no. we are still talking about Ale Saga. No. Why, John, it seems like just yesterday that we embarked on this bold adventure. We were boys then, and no. now. No, no, no. <laughs> This is our 11th episode on Ale Saga. Oh, And we knew going in that Ale Saga was going to be a doozy, Andy. You don't need to exaggerate now. This is one of medieval Iceland's, even medieval Europe's greatest literary achievements. 11 Mm. episodes is not too much to spend. You know, I'm no math whiz, John, but... uh, Yeah, we know. We know. Well, but if this is our 101st episode and we've done 11 on Ale, then we've devoted like 10% of this podcast to Ale Saga. 10.1%, 10.1%, yes. <laughs> it's, it's it's actually a little bit more than that. But uh, to me, that's kind of crazy. Um, how many episodes yeah. did we do on Yon? Uh, I think it was 11. Uh, and then, you know, one for Judgments. We did a couple okay. of Saga briefs on Conversion. Well, but let's go, let's say 12 on Yon yeah. total, yeah. right? That doesn't seem like a lot, actually, now that I think about it, as we're, as we're 11 into Ale. So maybe we need to, should we go back to... Uh, and y'all and flesh that one out a bit <laughs> that's gonna be a hard no from me oh, okay. i think we gave y'all everything we had at the time besides we're not we're not too far from the end of ale saga uh, and true. once we finish ale you know I, we could start to call this the home stretch um still 15 more sagas to go but only one more real titan okay okay fair enough so if we were going to revisit a saga didn't we already establish it was going to be airbridge's saga i think we left a lot of meat on those bones Yes, we did, um, but I doubt we'll revisit it. But uh, speaking of Erbegir Saga... Never uh, say never. I, recent, <laughs> I recently found uh, Matt Smith's sketch of that ghost seal from Erbegir Saga in you know, one of my uh, <laughs> folders on my computer. Oh, this is so great. Isn't that, isn't that the they? first time we interacted with Matt? Yeah, I mean, he had been drawing stuff while listening to the podcast for a while, I guess, and I didn't, didn't really know about it. Um, but I think it was the ghost seal that prompted me to contact him, uh, but I could be mm-hmm. wrong about that. Uh, anyway, I took a fun trip down uh, memory lane looking at all the Saga thing-related illustrations he's done. Fantastic yeah, stuff. I saw, I saw you were posting some of that on Twitter. Right. I mean, how could I not? They're such great pictures. Yeah, speaking of Matt, um, you mentioned in the show notes last time uh, that Matt has had to step away from his official, unofficial position as the Saga thing artist in residence uh, because he's become too successful. He's got work obligations. Well, I know he was already successful, to be fair, uh, but uh, he was very generously donating his time to us, and he is a professional illustrator with real mm-hmm. deadlines for paying work, and he does plan to contribute again sometime in the future, but he needed time to focus on other projects like Hellboy and the BPRD, Long Night at Golovsky, which comes out around Halloween from uh, Dark Horse Comics. Yeah, and I'm, I'm so excited about the Hellboy stuff. Uh, we're happy that Matt is doing so well, but at the same time, we've had so much fun seeing these sagas come to life through his artistic talents, and... I mean, he's been working with us since Calisinga Saga. Yes. Much like Henry Higgins, we've grown accustomed to his art. Oh, Andy, you might want to rethink that Rex Harrison impression, I think. (laughs) We were serenely independent and content before we met. Oh, boy. Surely we could always be that way again. Uh Uh-huh. And yet, we've grown accustomed to his drawings. Accustomed to his illustrations. Accustomed to his art. Yeah, you know, I think I'm starting to wonder if we haven't been doing this podcast for too long now. 
<laughs> you don't hear the clapping in the background? Uh, you know, what I what I do know is that much of that impression <laughs> that you just did was you doing the visual components, uh, which comes across beautifully on a podcast, by the way. I'm uh, glad no one can but, see that. But yes. But it was uh, hard. We've film. grown accustomed to Matt's art and we will miss him. Mm hmm. Yes, we will. Uh, and with Matt stepping away to work on other projects, I don't think we can bear to just record these episodes and not see some artistic representations of the saga's best scenes, can we? For the past several episodes, John, I've had to upload the show notes with no illustration, no nothing. It's, it's frankly, it's sad. Well, the only thing sadder than that would be uh, if you or I try to do the illustrations ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Uh, that's so not true. our area of talent. Uh, and that's why we're calling on you, faithful listeners. We already know that a lot of you are actually talented artists, uh, and we'd love to see what you can do with the sagas going forward. Uh, so if you feel inspired to draw or paint or create something inspired by what you hear on Saga Thing, let us know. Send it our way. Yeah, a few listeners have even responded to this kind of the preliminary initial call that we put out on social media and in the show notes from last time. Mm -hmm. For example, William Bilson sent us a beautiful landscape painting of Drangi, where Gretcher oh, the outlaw lived. And Arian from Silver Wheel Arts sent us pictures of an incredible collage sculpture inspired by Ail's efforts to get compensation from Athelstan after Brunenberg. Have you seen that? That thing's amazing. I, do you know, is that is that actually, was that commissioned at all? Is that being put up somewhere or is this? Uh, I don't think so. Of, I think she just did it cause, oh just because. Oh my gosh. It's amazing. It's, it's, I'm astounded by the visual talents of some of the people who listen to this podcast. Yeah. And I'm, I'm looking at uh, at uh, William Bilson's Drongi thing too. And I'm like, yep. I, I would hang that in my office. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Uh, yep. No, we, we, uh, it's it's a it's a little embarrassing sometimes knowing just how limited my visual talents are, <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> uh, exactly. but it's a it's a, it's a delight to think that uh, people are listening to this and are actually being moved to produce things to create things. Absolutely. So let's see what you've got, people. Send us your creations through social media. You can reach us on Twitter at Saga Thing Pod or on Facebook and Instagram at Saga Thing Podcast. Right, and of course we've got email if you're old fashioned like us. That's a saga thing podcast at gmail.com. Mm -hmm. And if you're using Twitter or Instagram, please uh, use the hashtag saga thing art. That makes it easier for everyone to find everything all at once. And by everyone, I really mean myself since uh, yeah. I'm interested yeah. in finding these things. Uh, I've also and created because you're a bit of a, a home for saga thing. And so when you say everyone, you mean you. Oh, that's, yes, of course. Um, I'm also going to create a home for Saga Thing art on our webpage, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com, in one of the uh, the tabs. And can I just say, if you're looking for inspiration, uh, tonight's episode has a few scenes that uh, I think might get your creative juices flowing. Absolutely, because this is the dueling episode with two L's. Are we, are we naming episodes now and spelling them? <laughs> No, no, but that's what I'm calling this one. Do you want to guess why, John? Oh, let me guess. Um, Ale goes to a feast, gets tempted by tasty morsels on the table, and then a, a string of saliva slips from between his lips and <laughs> down his bearded chin. No, 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 no. That's the drooling episode. We're we're not there oh, yet, but it's, oh, yes, it's, that Sorry. one's coming. This is the dueling episode. Right, because there's two of them. That's the ticket. Yes, the duels. Um, and we may have a strong candidate for best bloodshed by the end. In fact, there's well, a no, lot wait. of bloodshed. 
hang on. Before we get there, we need to remind everyone what happened in the last episode. I mean, do we really, though? You listened to the last episode, right? No, it's tradition. But we just talked about the poem. We didn't really... Tradition! All right. Get your finger in your ear. Last time on Ale Saga. After Ale erected a cursed scorn pole against his enemies, King Eric and Queen Gunnild of Norway, the royal couple was given the old heave-ho in a rebellion led by Eric's half-brother, Hauken the Good, and forced to skedaddle to Northumbria. But before they left, Gunnild returned the raspberry to Ale, cursing him to have no peace until they met again. Curses all around! You get a curse, and you get a curse, and you get a curse. Indeed. As Gunnhild's curse takes effect, Ale grows restless in Iceland. Finally, he puts on his traveling shoes and heads to England to visit his old friend, King Athelstan. But some unfortunate weather forces a rocky landing, stranding Ale on the shores of Eric and Gunnhild's spanking new Northumbrian kingdom. Hmm, bit of an awkward moment for Ale. I'll say. But he faces the situation head on. With the help of his ace pal, Arenbjorn the landowner, Ale meets for a chinwag with the king and queen. Despite some well-seasoned words from the salty queen Gunnild, Ale is allowed to recite a long poem in honor of Eric. Though the poem apparently praises the king, it also gives him the business. Fortunately, it mostly went over Eric's head, who allowed Ale to keep his. Very clever. Free from the clutches of Eric and Gunnild, Ale beats feet southward to drop in on his long-lived benefactor, King Athelstan of England, where he's treated as the cock of the walk. But before long, he's taking to the seas again to lend his hand as Arenbjorn's nephew, Thorstein Thorison, sails to Norway to press an inheritance claim. The new Norwegian king, Hauken, grants Thorstein his lands, but he's a real crab patch when Ale tries to suck up. Nevertheless, Hauken gives Ale permission to seek his own land claims in the Norwegian courts. <laughs> okay, so some stuff happened, but yeah. only right at the end there, right? <laughs> um, our last episode was kind of light on action and heavy on discussion, which is always fun. No problem there. Well, and I think we could have gone a lot further than we did, right? I mean, there's still a lot left on that plate. True, but we've sent it off to the starving children, and now we're moving on to the action-packed dueling episode. Action-packed, you say? Action-packed. Die Hard well, wishes it was this episode. I can't wait. And since it is the dueling episode, uh, we should probably revisit the Viking Age duel as a concept, don't you think? Well, didn't we do a whole episode on the home gong? Uh, yeah, no, we did. It was a saga brief, and it was called the home gong. Or the Icelandic art of dueling. Now that's a clever title. I'm claiming credit for that one. <laughs> you go right ahead. Uh, but do you remember when we did that episode, Andy? When? Uh, not exactly. A while ago, I'm going to say. Just a while yeah, ago. Yeah, no, it was our second saga brief. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it, it a while was back ago. In, yeah, it was back in 2014. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think we can really expect our listeners to remember everything from a five-year-old saga brief, do you? Well, to be fair, most of our listeners haven't been with us since 2014. So it's not five years old for everyone, but I uh -huh. see your point. <laughs> we could cover the basics real quick, I think. Okay, well, let's let's start with the Old Norse term for a duel, the home gong. 
literally it means an island going or an island walk. And that's because the duel between the two combatants would take place on an island, whether a real a one or a kind of imagined one. Uh, many of the Holmgangs we see in the sagas take place on a specific island. Right? Um, for example, we're told that Holmgangs at the All Thing were always fought on an island in the Axewater. Yeah. And as we'll see in this episode, the island could be an actual island or, as you said, a figurative island. Right. We've seen examples of both. Although I always wonder if the saga authors who are, who are writing long after the home gong became illegal placed duels on islands, on literal islands, just because mm-hmm. of the name home gong. Right. I mean, it's quite possible the island was always figurative. Right? It's a it's a marked off space on the on the land. Uh, in most of our sources, that's what they do. They they mark out a square within which to fight. Right? That's the island they walk. Yeah, yeah. Remember Cormac's saga. It offers a lengthy description of the Holmgang that I'm not going to yeah. read. But the text the author seemed to be quoting from stipulated that the duel be fought on a cloak or ooxhide that was 8 by 8 feet or roughly 3 by 3 meters. And then a shallow Wait, is ditch. 8 by 8 feet or 3 by 3 meters Andy math again? Those I, aren't I, very close. <laughs> I think they're pretty close based on the... Internet calculations. Um, I did three by three <laughs> meters is ten foot by ten foot. But okay, it's I said well, if you're fighting to the death with swords, I think the extra two feet makes a difference. <laughs> All right, let me tell you about the ditch, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, according to the text, a shallow ditch of about uh, it should be about a foot wide was dug out around the cloak, um, and that would provide a boundary for the combatants. And that the corners of this ditch would be the poles. So there's your island right there. Right. So it's a fairly elaborate description, which is why it gets quoted so often. Anytime somebody mm-hmm. talks about duels in the sagas, they end up going to Cormac Saga. Uh, the two combatants would agree upon the rules of the home gun prior to arriving. They sort of have to work out the details. Typically, they decide what weapons to fight with, how many shields would be allowed. Uh, and you have to have multiple shields because shields tend to break in combat. Right? They're made of linden wood. And they're designed to kind of break away as you fight with them. Uh, and they'd also determine whether they'd be fighting to first blood or to the death. Yes, the stakes of the home gong were usually pretty high. Honor was almost always at stake. But as we've seen there, where it's usually either a woman or property hanging in the balance as well. Right. And the home gong, it's sort of viewed as a viable alternative to a court settlement at certain times. Right? We do mm-hmm. see that kind of split in the sagas between the era when dueling is legal and the era when it becomes illegal. Uh, so as we'll see in this episode, somebody who didn't feel like he could get justice through the court system does have the option to challenge his rival to a home gong, to a formal duel. And that's a dangerous venture because both men are then putting life and limb on the line. Yeah. The home gong was also an easy way for less scrupulous men to circumvent the courts and mm-hmm. true villains could even make a living by challenging weaker men of wealth to a home gong for the rights to their daughters and or their lands. Right. And th- those men are usually given the nickname Dueler. Uh, they're usually, they're almost always trouble. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that, you know, we think of Dueler as being sort of a, a mark of distinction. But yeah, more often than not, it's it's a sign that you are the kind of person who challenges a lot of duels. Yes. And wins, to be fair. Fair, yes. Um, yeah, we could go on and on about this. Uh, indeed, we already have. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about the home gong in medieval Iceland, then give our saga brief on the subject a listen. I uh, I believe John and I play out a dispute over some wooded land that ends in a home gong. And if you'd like to see one, there's a brilliant home gong at the end of the first episode of Norseman on Netflix. 
<laughs> uh, I'm not sure that either one of those is historically accurate, but the, the Norseman uh-huh. one is definitely a good one. But are you suggesting that Norseman isn't devoted to historical accuracy? I mean, it might not be their first priority, uh, but it's okay. fine. It's a great show. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, well, if Norseman isn't good enough for you and you're still hungry for more Holmgang info, then I want to I recommend that you check out articles by Marlene Siklamini. Gwyn Jones, Arnolf Silker, R.S. Radford, and Olaf Bow. Uh, a quick warning, most of those are from a long time ago. Uh, the most recent <laughs> is from 1988 or 89, I think. Mm. Um, it's not a subject people have been excited about for quite a while. Are you going to stick those references in the show notes? Yes, yeah. Um, yes, I, absolutely. Uh, Good. But okay, enough shilly-shallying, John. Uh, are you ready to give a preview of this episode? Do we really want to spoil it? We should just maybe I, jump in. Well, I mean, I think the key, my friend, is to provide enough of an amuse-bouche to encourage the uh, the listener to go forward, but not so much as to give it all away. The key is to be vague. Yes, we, we, we want them to enter the oral smorgasbord with an <laughs> eager palate. Exactly right. Okay, I think I can handle it. Right, tuck it, Tuck your napkins into your collars and get ready. After receiving permission from King Halkin to reclaim the lands Ausker should have inherited from her father, Eil journeys to Hordaland to confront Atli the Short. Along the way, he stops at the home of Gyrda, Arambjorn's sister, and her son, Fridger. While they welcome Eil warmly, there's a chill in the air of Fridger's hall. A Swedish berserker has challenged the handsome young Fridger to a duel, and the future of the family hangs in the balance. Without Ail's help in the duel, this family is doomed. With the fate of Fritger's family secure, Ail moves on to Hordeland, where Atli the Short refuses to give up the property of Bjorn the landowner without a fight. The clash begins in the courts of the Gulathing, but ends in the dueling grounds. Though Ail brings his best to this battle, he quickly discovers that Atli is invulnerable to the bite of weapons. Will he be able to draw his way out of this one? Or will his mouth fail him at last? Finally, Eil reunites with Arenbjorn. And after a disappointing visit to the court of King Hauken, the two men begin to see the benefits of leaving Norway sooner rather than later. Before going their separate ways, they go raiding on the continent for old time's sake. But things don't go as planned for Eil, and soon he finds himself behind enemy lines as the Viking ships prepare to leave. Join us for this action-packed thriller we call Ale Saga, chapter 65 to 70. Oh, this one's going to be fun. Then let's get started. Part 34, Weeping Beauty. Okay. All right. <laughs> you good with that one? I'm all right with that. Our last episode ended with Ail's visit to Hauken, the king of Norway. That's correct. Now, Ail and Thorsten sought the king's support in claiming inheritance properties that had been wrongly taken from them under Eric Bloodaxe's, uh, what we call it, his, his questionable approach to justice. 
definitely questionable. Yes, I remember. Uh, that said, I think we should remind everyone who Thorstein is, if only because he and his family play a role in this first section. Right, of course. Uh, so Thorstein is the grandson of Thor the Herser. Uh, and if you don't remember Thor the Herser, he was the foster son of Kveldulf and the best friend of Scott Grimm. So he's been mm-hmm. with us since the very beginning of the story. Until he died, but yes. Well, yes. Thor is His the father of Arinbjorn. His memory with us, Andy. His memory is. Uh, Thor is the father of Arinbjorn, who is Ail's best friend, and Arinbjorn has two sisters, Thora and Gutha. Right. Now, Thorsten is the son of Thora. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been given permission and authority from King Halkin to reclaim some family lands. His father recently passed away, and now he's the, the heir. Ale likewise asked the king for support, claiming an inheritance due to his wife, Asgard, from their father, from her father, excuse me, uh, Bjorn the landowner. Yeah, that's the land he's been trying to get since chapter 57, when Bjorn the landowner passed away and his son-in-law, Beric Onund, took the land for himself. Right. So Ale tried to get the land through the courts, but he was denied by King Eric and Queen Gunild. And when he tried to challenge Beric Onund to a duel, Eric blocked him again. Yeah, but only temporarily, because that led to Ale stalking Bergonin like a bear in Chapter 58 of the saga. Mm-hmm. Yes, but that was all illegal. Um, he attacked well, and turned Bergonin into a nearly headless Bergonin. Nearly headless? To say Harry yes. Potter reference? Uh, yeah, I thought, see, a, we don't have many of those. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Um, now, that was, a, that was a genuine Ale moment. Uh, remember, this is the same occasion when he sort of lost control of himself and ended up massacring a bunch of people, including the uh, the young son of the king. Uh, That's right. Now, and because of that whole situation, Eric and Gunild understandably hate Ale, uh, and they made mm-hmm. sure he couldn't claim the property after that by giving it to Onan's brother, Otley the Short. We'll get to him soon, but for now, Ale and Thorsten have received their tokens from King Halcon, and they're preparing to leave Trondheim to reclaim what is theirs. The saga says that they travel south to the Dofrefjell mountain range that separates southeastern Norway from the Trondelag. This path is appropriate for Thorstein, who is headed to his property in Ramariki, just northeast of Oslo. Right, but Eil has his own tokens to claim his wife's lands. Right, He's not interested in going south or east. He's got mm-hmm. business in Sonfjord and Hordland, which are to the west. Right. He's hoping to conclude all of that business in time to load a ship and get back to Iceland before the end of summer. So what season is it now? I was afraid you were going to ask that. Uh, let's see. They went to visit King Halkin um, late in the year, in winter. So Ale has plenty of times to get his affair in order. right? It's got to be very early in the year. Uh, now, that uh-huh. said, he can't really afford a trip south with Thorsten. Uh, so the, the two now part ways in friendship. Yeah, so Ale takes 11 men with him and travels to Romsdal. Uh-huh. Uh, from there, he arranges transport and makes his way south to Hold Island and then to a farm called Blindheim. Now, why Blindheim, you ask? I wasn't going to ask, but if you're going to ask on my behalf, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, it, it's the farmstead of Frithgeir, the son of Gutha, Arnbjorn's other sister. Ah, so so Ale has gone from one nephew of Arnbjorn to another. Exactly. And while that may seem like an odd choice on the part of the author to keep shoehorning in these related characters, it's actually purposeful and quite smart. And actually, I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, Ale and his family don't have the best reputation in Norway. Right. Uh, Eric and Gunnil might be gone, but uh, he knows that King Hauken isn't exactly a fan either. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Ale's got a lot of other enemies around too, and some of them are very powerful. He has to exactly. remain on his guard while traveling. 
And so he's making a special effort here to stay with people he knows are friendly, secure, and strong enough to protect him. It makes mm-hmm. sense that he'd seek out the kinsmen of Arambjorn. Yeah, and Ale is well-received at Frithgar's farm. Yeah. Gutha, Arambjorn's sister, is particularly interested in Ale's visit. While they're seated at a feast, Gutha approaches Ale to learn all she can about her brother's life in England, Ale's adventures, and anything of note he can tell. And Ale tells her all about it, and then offers this verse. I could not stand the ugly land claimer's wrath. No cuckoo will alight knowing that the squawking eagle prowls. There as before, I benefited from the bear of the hearth seat. No one need give up who boasts such a loyal helper in his travels. The ugly land claimer. I mean, that's uh, yeah, clearly Eric yeah. Bloodaxe, right? Yeah. So I guess uh, Ale's brief stay in York didn't really soften his feelings for the exiled king. Yeah, I don't think so, no. Uh, Eric is also being described as a squawking eagle who hunts a cuckoo. <laughs> Not exactly flattering. Uh, especially since the Old Norse doesn't even say eagle. Oh, no, it doesn't, does it? No, no. It says, Sungrat gaukr if glaumagaum. Vet um sic trauma, which means roughly <laughs> the cuckoo, and forgive my old Norse, uh, but that means roughly the cuckoo does not sing if he knows the vulture of the din flaps heavily above him. Right. Uh, so, I mean, squawking eagle, I guess, is sort of on a level with uh, a yeah. vulture of the din when it comes to insulting. Right. But the language really hammers home the image of Eric as a carrion bird who picks at the leavings of battle. Exactly, yes. Uh, I think it's safe to say that Ale still hates Eric. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, remember in that poem that he did, uh, it was, he often uh, made the point that Eric's glory in battle often came while his men were being massacred. Uh, <laughs> it's not it's not a, a flowery uh, profile that he gives him. Uh, but Ale's love for Arnbjorn remains clear. Right? The, uh, the bear of the hearth seat who was such a loyal helper to him, is clearly Arambjorn. Right, right. Uh, Arambjorn's name is a compound, meaning something like hearth bear. So bear of the hearth seat would be pretty obvious to Arambjorn's sister and anyone else who knows the language. Uh, And that concluding line, which I translate as, the one who boasts such a loyal helper on his journey will not falter, although that falter, which is nigrat auler, uh, could also be read as drop dead. Um, Either way, it's a smart line. Um, at the same time, he's he's praising Arambjorn and suggesting to Gutha that he expects the same support from her and Frithgar. Right. And he's he's speaking in a language, you know, the, the sort of language of high poetry that mm-hmm. uh, he expects an intelligent audience to get. And it's been made clear to us already that Gutha is an intelligent audience. Uh, right? This yes. is a firm-minded woman who's very much in charge at this farm. Ale really pitches his poem to that audience, right? Uh, he he knows who he's talking to, and he he in the same way that he pitched his poem to insult Eric last time, he pitches this poem mm-hmm. in a way that is almost a compliment to his host, right? This is going to be this is a very well constructed poem uh, for an audience that he knows will appreciate it. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right, John. Okay, so now, and you'd expect that the party after Ale's arrival would be a lively affair. Uh, but we're told that Fridgir and the people on the farm are all fairly subdued. 
Uh, now, Guth is doing her job as a hostess, but everybody else is kind of a bit a bit lax. And Ale spots a beautiful young woman on the bench who looks particularly unhappy. She sits weeping all night. Well, every party has a pooper. Well, and it turns out that this pooper is Fridger's sister. Uh, but no one addresses the cause of her sorrow. She just sits there crying. Mm-hmm. Ale and his men are forced to stay at Fridger and Guth's farm for three days while they wait for the weather to clear. And all that while, this girl lingers in the background, crying to herself. Yes. When the winds calm, Ale and his men prepare to leave. Right. They're not the hearty... least bit curious about this crying girl. <laughs> no. After a hearty breakfast, Guth, Frithger, and Weeping Beauty accompany Ale on his way to the ship. And before they get there, Guth pulls Frithger aside and starts whispering to him. And that leaves Ale standing there awkwardly with this crying girl. <laughs> yeah, which... At long last, he's sort of finally forced to speak to her. Yeah, just what she needs. I mean, who better to comfort a damsel in distress than Ailes Scott the Grimson? Yeah, almost anyone else would be better. Uh, Ailes' only comment is, so what are you crying about? I can see you're never happy. Ah, the gentle touch of Ale. He's going to make a great father. (laughs) Uh, The poor girl can't answer. I mean, she just cries harder. Of course, yeah. I'd love to see Ale's face as the two of them stand there together, right? What a Eyebrows great scene. all akimbo. Oh, what do I uh, do now? And while they're sort of standing there in this awkward silence, uh, Fridger, who's been standing off to one side whispering with his mother, raises his voice and says, I don't want to ask them to do that. They're ready to leave now. I'd rather. I'd rather. I'd rather. I'd rather sing. <laughs> And suddenly, this narrative about Frithger and the crying girl starts to knit itself together. Okay, Ale's yeah. done a good job of selling himself to Gutha as an adventurer who's capable of handling himself in difficult situations. And he's also heaped praise on Gutha's brother, suggesting that he's in the family's debt. Right. Now, as we said, Gutha's no dummy. Whatever mm-hmm. is wrong with her daughter, Gutha sees Ale as a potential solution. Absolutely. And since Frithger is unwilling to step up and ask for his help... Gutha now approaches Ale and explains everything. Mm-hmm. I will tell you exactly what's going on here, she says. There is a man called Lyot the Pale, a berserk and dueler who is very much hated. He came here and asked for my daughter's hand in marriage, but we turned him down on the spot. And so he challenged my son Frithger to a duel. He'll be coming to fight him at Valdera Island tomorrow. I'd like you to go to the site of the duel with Frithger Ale. Ah, see, it all comes together. Yes, it does. Oh, and she adds, If Arambjorn were here, he would prove that we do not put up with overbearing behavior from men such as Lyot. Yeah, now, now a statement like that means that Ale is locked in, right? He, mm-hmm. he says, Well, for the sake of your brother Arambjorn, it's my duty to make this journey with Fridgear, especially if he thinks I can help him in any way. Good job, Gutha. Yep. And if all goes as she plans, it won't be Frithgar stepping into the squared circle with Lyot the Pale. Yeah, no, but uh, let's find out. Part 35. A whole Lyot of dueling going on. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know whether to (laughs) applaud or hide under my desk. Oh, come on. That's a good one. Yeah, well, future generations will have to decide the merits of your titles, John. 
I don't care. Current generations love them, so I'm happy. Is that right? Well, if I'm being honest, it pales in comparison to some of your other titles. <laughs> <laughs> See, oh, we're allowing that? <laughs> I mean, if okay. you can do it, I can. Uh, so the next day, Fridger, Ale, and a large band of men sail to Valdra Island. Yeah, that's the island just south of Vigur Island in Norway, if you're looking. Yeah, of course you'd know that. Uh, now, when they arrive on Valdra, they make their way to a field just off the shore that had been designated as the site of the home god. And at the site, there were stones arranged in a circle to mark out the dueling space. Uh, there's no ditch or cloak like in Cormac Saga, but this fits the formula of the home gong nicely so far. Right. All that's important is that the two combatants agree on the terms and on the yeah. borders. Uh, and they apparently have done so because they know where to go. Mm-hmm. So soon after Fridger arrives, the Pale shows up with his own band of men. He's carrying a shield and a sword, and as soon as Ale sees him, he realizes that Fridger is in big trouble. Yeah. Lyot is described as huge and strong mm-hmm. and pale, and when he enters the arena, a berserk fury comes over him. Mm-hmm. So he starts howling and biting at his shield. Right. I think that reference, the nickname The Pale, is probably a reference to that berserk fury, right? To that uh, to that sudden kind of rush of rage. Uh, some men become red in the face. Some men become pale in the face with anger. Hmm. I'm, I don't know. Uh, so uh, we get we get this description of Fridgir at this moment. Uh, Fridgir was not a big, strong man, <laughs> <laughs> but slim and handsome and unaccustomed to fighting. Oh, well, this is going to go great. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I think seeing the two side by side doesn't inspire much confidence in Ale. Uh, he uh, he mutters a poem about this, and uh, then he walks toward the ring with his own men. Yeah. Of course, this gets Ljolt's attention, uh, and he yeah. knows that there's no honor in cutting down a, a waif like Frithger, but A slender gentleman. <laughs> Remember, he's a, he's a handsome man. He's handsome, but yeah, he's not exactly a challenge. <laughs> but Ale is a worthy challenge. Yes. And so he calls out to Ale. Come into the arena, big man, and fight me if you are so eager. Let us test our strengths against one another. So, Jot the Pale is a, is a Arnold Schwarzenegger as a Muppet? I mean, he's a Swede. I appreciate that. So, it's, yeah, he's you a know. Really roided up uh, Swedish chef. Uh, <clears throat> all right. So Ale uh, accepts this challenge with a witty poem about how he'll sport with the pale man with his armor prodder and give him no hope of mercy. And then he prepares for the fight, uh, taking up his shield and his sword, Slicer. Remember, he gained the sword last time. Mm -hmm. Uh, His other sword, Adder, is slung at his waist. Now, you know, I think this is going exactly as Gutha had planned, right? She's you a clever think? woman, and yep. she clearly knows how a man like Ale thinks. His arrival at Blindheim afforded her an opportunity to save both Frithgar and her daughter from Ljot the Pale. I mean, it all worked out perfectly. Oh, absolutely. I agree. Uh, now, when Ale has uh, prepared himself, he steps into the circle and shakes his sword at Ljot. Uh, we should be clear that what he's doing here is legal. Uh, mm-hmm. You are allowed to choose someone else or ask someone else to serve as your locum in a duel. Uh, it's not It's not necessarily a loss of honor to Fridgir to have Ale fight for him. I mean, anybody can see that Ale is the better choice. Right. The only loss of honor would come if Ale lost the duel. 
so Ale steps in, he shakes his sword, and he recites another poem. Of course he does. <laughs> yeah, he boasts that he will hack Yolt's life away, play the pale man foul, silence the troublemaker, and with iron feed eagle flesh. Yeah, and with that, Yolt covers himself with sun lotion and then enters the circle. <laughs> <laughs> and the two men rush at each other. Yeah, and Ale strikes at Yolt. But Yolt parries with his shield. Ale follows with a series of violent attacks. Uh, he's, his strategy here appears to be to force Yolt to yield ground. Yes, and Yolt, frustrated by the flurry of Ale's attacks, sees no opening to return a blow, and so he backs up quickly, hoping to create space required to launch a counterattack. But Ale is after him just as quickly as he retreats, always striking. Blow after blow is raining down on Yolt's shield. Yolt rushes around the circle, weaving in and out of the stone boundaries, trying to flee Ale's endless string of blows. There's no hope for him, no opening, and so he parries and gives ground again and again until his lungs burn with every breath. And then finally, he raises a hand and asks for a rest. Timeout? So Ale grants him his timeout, and as Mm -hmm. they rest, he recites another poem. Uh, this time voicing his frustration with Yacht. The thruster of spear burners seems to back off from my force. The ill-fated wealth snatcher fears my fierce onslaught. The spear dude stave falters and fails to strike. He who asks for doom is sent roaming by old Baldhead. I love it. Scotla. Old Baldhead. Now, (laughs) rather than jump back into the action... Old Baldhead is not a reference to his weapon, it's a reference to him. (laughs) Yes, right. Now, rather than jump back into the action, the saga author interjects at this moment to explain that back in those days... The laws of dueling stated that any man killed in a duel would forfeit all of his property, and the slayer would inherit it. Huh. And then he announces another law, which said that if a foreigner died with no heir in the country, his inheritance would pass to the king. Now, why would the author want to insert this here, one wonders? I wonder, too. Maybe we'll find out by the end of the episode. Could be. Uh, either way, a short interlude about what happens when one combatant dies in a home gun doesn't bode well for the berserker who spent the duel running around the field dodging his opponent. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Uh, and Ale is losing patience. Uh, he shouts for Yolt to get ready. Then he rushes across the field and strikes. And Slicer crashes into Yolt's shield with incredible force. Yolt is staggered by the blow. His arm goes numb. And the shield falls to the ground. Right. And then Ale strikes yet again with Slicer, slashing at Yolt just above the knee. And as Yolt's leg separates from his body, he notices the ground rushing up towards his face. And that's the last thing he sees. Rushing, I'm sorry, separates from his body and he sees the ground rushing up toward his face. <laughs> well, his leg, you see, what's happening here, John? Okay. Yeah, I, I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Uh, I, I see it. You, you've 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 painted quite the uh, quite the little diorama in a shoebox. He's he's uh, he's falling down because he's. <laughs> I gotcha. Surprised oh, yeah. to be on one leg. Yes, 
You yes, see. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, Ale, who's victorious now, walks over to Fridgear and recites a poem. Of uh, course he does. Here we go again. <laughs> the feeder of wolves fell, worker of evil deeds. This poet chopped Yolt's leg off. I brought Fridgear peace. I do not ask for a reward from the splasher of gold for that. The spear's din was fun enough. The fight with the pale man. And so we're back in the warrior poet sagas. Yeah, this is familiar territory. Oh, and and then we get the narrator's attempt at a eulogy for Lyot. He says, "Most people did not mourn Lyot's death." <laughs> Yeah, it's touching. <laughs> Let me get a tissue. Oh, and he adds, Lyot was Swedish. <laughs> of course, of course he was. How cliche. And he had no kinsmen in Norway, but had grown wealthy by dueling. Oh, oh. So he made a living in Norway by challenging worthy men to duels and then claiming their farms and lands after killing them. So... Because we happen to have gotten this uh, this interlude about what happens when a man dies in a duel, mm-hmm. we are poised now to understand that Ale gets to claim all of those lands as the alt's killer. Sure, sure. Unless, of course, King Halkin wants to assert his legal right to claim the land for himself, since Lyot is a foreigner with no heirs in the country. Oh, he wouldn't dare. Oh, no, 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 no. A king would never dare take advantage of an easy land grab. That's not how governments work, John. Well, whatever happens, it's not resolved here at the site of the home gun. Uh, Ale goes home with Fridgir and stays with him and Gutha, and the suddenly less weepy beauty. Uh, and he does ask Fridgir to claim the land that Yacht had owned. Hang on a second. It doesn't say anything about Fridgir's sister being happy, which is really weird. The whole chapter was supposed to be about saving this damsel in distress, but she's pushed into the background the whole time. She doesn't get a name, and once Gutha draws Ale into the conflict, the girl disappears from the narrative entirely. We don't see her again. Yeah, I mean, it's disappointing. It's worth noting, we don't hear much about Gutha either at this point. No. Ale goes home with Fridgir, hangs out with Fridgir, and parts in great friendship from Fridgir. No mention of either of the women from earlier in the chapter. It's, It's almost like the author isn't all that interested in the lives of women. Almost, right? I mean, honestly, as much as I like Ale Saga, John, I think the complete disregard for the women in the saga is a major failing, or at least yeah. a missed opportunity. I mean, women yeah. have appeared, but they're almost always treated as objects, property, prizes for men to move around. Yeah. I mean, even uh, someone like Asgard, who you'd think would have a central role in Ale's life, is, I mean, she's, since, since they married, she's been little more than an object for Ale to occasionally miss and return to after some years away. Mm-hmm. Right? He... He wants her the same way he wants property and wealth. Absolutely, yeah. And, and you know this is true because Ail's behavior when he was pining for Osgard was exactly the same as when he was yeah. lusting for property and wealth elsewhere. He gets yeah. moody, he gets depressed, and he starts composing poetry. And once he has the object of his desire, well, we don't really hear anything about it anymore. In fact, uh-huh. I'm not even convinced, John, that Ail was more interested in Osgard than he was in the property and wealth of her father, Bjorn the Landholder. Ooh, that's them's fighting words. Well, don't tell Ale I said that. (laughs) Um, 
Well, speaking of Asgard and the property that Ale has been lusting after, it's time for Ale to actually claim Asgard's inheritance. Ooh. Part 36. Otley comes up short. <laughs> well, that was a quick shift, John. Well, I could see us uh, switching into a long digression about uh, women in Ale saga. Well, and just like the author, you want to silence the voices of women in the oh. text. I see. Well, how patriarchal of yeah, you, that's John. Cute. Very yeah, that's nice. Cute. No, it's, it's a worthwhile conversation. Uh, but I think uh, I think the problem here is that ultimately we're arguing from silence, right? I mean, it's it's the author simply doesn't have the interest in the stories of women. Uh, besides, this is the dueling episode, Andy. I'm trying to stick to the rules you established when we started. This episode is about action, not digressions. Fair enough. I did say that. Uh, we're going to have to circle back around to the women in Ale Saga issue at yeah, some point. No, absolutely. Uh, but for now, Ale leaves his new buddy, Fridger Guðason, and uh, sets sail for his father's old stomping grounds in Fjordina. There he meets with Thor Brynjolfsson, who uh, you might remember is the brother of Björn the landowner. Yes, that was a long time ago, so it's a welcome reminder. And just like before, Ale is sticking to farms where he can be assured of a good welcome. Thord hasn't been a major character in the saga, but he has been tangentially involved in the property disputes over Bjorn's lands. Right, that's right. And when he sees the tokens from King Halkin, he immediately promises to help where he can. And then he slips into the background <laughs> where he belongs. Uh, Thord actually doesn't have much of a role to play. Well, he's all. basically running a B and B for ale, right? He's uh, he's busy he's busy yes, cleaning he the towels and providing a nice breakfast. Uh, but he's mentioned because right. he's got some interest in the outcome of the case, right? This is his brother's property originally, and he represents a mm-hmm. powerful ally for ale in the in, in this region, right? Somebody who can provide ale with a place to stay and men to support him. Uh, yeah, and I think that's it, right, the men. Right, exactly. And once that's established, he's not really terribly important to the story beyond that. Yeah. Now, we mentioned earlier that after Eil killed Berg Onund, the property transferred to Onund's brother, Atli the Short. And Atli is not going to give up this land just because Eil asks nicely and waves a few tokens from King Hauken in his face. Right, and of course, Eil's not going to ask all that nicely. Uh, When Eil arrives at the farm, at at Otley's farm at Ask in Fenring, he does at least open with a formal declaration that outlines the history of his claim, and he establishes the authority behind his current visit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but Otley is not impressed. He says, We've been hearing for some time, Eil, that you're rather overbearing. And now I'm getting a taste of it myself. Yeah, it doesn't sound like he's going to give in on this one. Not at all. In fact, he has a counteroffer. He says, I thought you would have come here to offer me compensation for killing my brothers and then plundering the property here at Ausk. He then suggests that Ale take his case to court if he feels like the outcome might be different this time around. Oh, see. And Ale... A nice little yeah, taunt. Yeah, Ale responds that he's got the king's permission. It's a different king, remember? The king's permission to seek redress for the wrongs done to him by Burgon in, in court. Okay, but that that's actually quite different from a king's edict to turn over the property to Ale at once. Oh, it's still got to go through the courts. Yeah, no, it's quite different. Uh, now, at this point, uh, both men feel they have a legitimate claim to the property, and they're not going to give it up easily, right? Uh, but unlike last time, Ale feels like he's actually got a shot at being heard in court. So they yeah. agree to take the case to the Gula Assembly in the spring. So when the time arrives for the case to be heard, Ale and Otley both present their sides of the case. 
Ale explains the history of the claim as he's done before, and then Otley steps forward and defends himself with the sworn testimony of 12 good witnesses that he doesn't even have Ale's property in his possession. Okay, now we have to think about this, right? What does he mean there when he says he doesn't have Ale's property in his possession? It's pretty vague, and it just jumps into the next kind of sequence of things. He never really explains it. So the way I see it is he's either lying to manipulate the court or he's transferred the property to someone else to help nullify the terms of Ailes' accusations. Mm-hmm. And it's also possible, and I think this is how many have read it, actually, that Ailes isn't suing for the lands themselves, but the value of the lands that he's owed. So having liquid assets would be better for Ailes anyways, rather than having these properties in Norway. And if these are the terms of the case, then Oddly could just be swearing that he doesn't actually have the liquid assets available. Uh, the word they're using in this whole thing is 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 fey, which means wealth, goods, and property. Mm-hmm. So, like, I'm not sure which it is here: wealth, goods, right. or property. See, I yeah, I actually read this a little bit differently. Um, when do you? Ali says he doesn't have Ale's property in his keeping. What he's doing is standing on legal precedent. Right, uh, Ale is making a claim mm-hmm. for the lands that were originally those of Bjorn, the landowner, but. Uh, Otley is saying there's already been a legal case establishing that this property is not yours and never was because your wife was Mm. illegitimate, right? The determining of the court was that because Osgird was illegitimate, that her half-sister claimed all the land properly and that therefore Berg Onan claimed all the land properly. So uh, when Otley says he doesn't have Ale's property in his possession, what he means is that Ale has no legal standing to claim that property. The property Mm. he has in his possession is his and not ales. Very interesting. Yeah, I, I, I could, I could buy that. Uh, but either way, uh, ales not having it. Right. Well, however, he interprets Otley's words. He's not, he's not down with this. He's not at home to this. Uh, realizing that the court is probably going to fail him again, Ale decides to take matters into his own hands. With his companions at his side, Ale steps to Otley the Short and says, "Well, I offer you a different type of justice, Otley." A duel here at the assembly, staking the property for the winner to take. And Otley replies, You took the words right out of my mouth. I have plenty of grounds for taking vengeance on you, Ale. You've killed my two brothers. And I would be a long way from achieving justice if I just chose to hand over my wealth to you. Right. And so on that note, uh, the two men shake hands and agree on the terms of the duel. Yeah, and there's no indication of where they fought, but we're going to assume that the Gula thing had designated dueling grounds for a purpose like this, right, similar right. to uh, at the, the All Thing. Right, the Iceland. things all seem to, yes. Uh, so Ale arrives mm-hmm. at the duel wearing a helmet and carrying a shield. And he's got his uh, Kessia, his thrusting halberd, in his right hand, and his right. sword slicer dangling from his wrist. Yes, and Otley was equipped the same. Uh, he's a strong and courageous man with a lot of experience in dueling, we're told. Uh, oh, and he's uh, he's skilled with the magical arts. Oh, that might be he? an important detail. Y- you think? Yeah, maybe. Maybe a little uh, bit. Now, just before the duel begins, a large sacrificial bull is brought out. And uh, this hmm. bull is going to be given to the victor to slaughter. Now, we should talk about the bull after the duel, but sure. uh, let's dive into the action, shall we? All right. Uh, so both men immediately charge at each other. Uh, They heave their spears, which fly through the air and strike the shields, but neither spear sticks. Both of them just fall to the ground uselessly. Yeah, the two men grab their swords, close in, and exchange blows. 
Right. And Ail strikes hard at Otley. Otley does not yield at Ail's violent attack. Instead, uh-huh. he fights back. Right, which is probably the better strategy for dealing with Ale, right? Yalt yeah. uh, gave ground and that did him no good at all. The two men exchange blow after blow, chipping away at the shields. And soon Otley's shield splits through. He tosses it away and wields his sword with both hands and starts hacking away at Ale's shield. Yeah, now Ale manages to land a well-aimed blow. He gets past Otley's guard and hits Otley on the shoulder. But the sword doesn't bite. He lands a second and then a third blow, easily finding openings in Otley's defense because Otley is no longer defending himself. But mm-hmm. no matter where the blade lands, it doesn't bite. Yeah. Otley presses forward, having nearly finished Ale's shield. Right. And suddenly, Ale, realizing it's useless, throws his shield and sword to the ground. Instead, he charges at Otley, grabbing him with his gigantic hands. Now, caught off guard, Otley is forced backwards. He loses his footing and then stumbles to the ground. Now, Ale lands with force right on top of Otley, forces his head back, and then bites into his throat. Blood gushes into Ale's mouth. And Otley's vision goes dark, and his body goes limp. And with great haste, Ale leaps up, presumably spits out what's in his mouth, and rushes over to the sacrificial bull. He grabs it by the nostrils with one hand and by the horns with the other. He swings it over on its back and breaks its neck. Then he walks over to his companions and speaks a verse. Well, Black Slicer did not bite the shield when I brandished it. Otley the Short kept blunting its edge with his magic. I used my strength against that sword-wielding braggart. My teeth removed that peril. Thus, I vanquished the beast. This is one of those awe-inspiring moments of violence in the sagas. Under the circumstances, I I think it's a reasonable move by Ale. His sword has been blunted by Atli's magic, and there's no way for him to hurt his opponent with a weapon. So thinking quickly, Ale dispatches Atli with brutal force and animalistic violence. This moment is exciting on the one hand and, and, and then frightening on the other. As Margaret Clooney's Ross explains... Ale's most violent acts are often linked to animal imagery and almost always inspire him to compose poetry. The only direct animal association, John, that I can recall is when Ale pretended to be a bear when stalking Bear Onand, and that oh. one fits nicely. But uh, she's right that every act of extreme violence and every break with common mores of, of Iceland and human beings, <laughs> it's always followed by a poem. <laughs> And these poems serve to both memorialize the event and also to explain or even justify the action. In this poem, for example, Ale explains that he was unable to harm Atli because of the magic and he had to rely instead on his strength and his Yaxobrother, his molar brother or canine tooth mm. is what he says in the poem. <laughs> and he needed that to conquer the enemy. It's horrific, but again, a reasonable course of action under the circumstances and mm-hmm. There's nothing I see in this text to indicate that we should judge Ale for this deed. How how do you read this one, John? Yeah, no. Uh, animal imagery makes sense when we're talking about ripping someone's throat out with your teeth, right? I mean, that's. Uh, I mean, think where that image fits into modern horror, right? Werewolves go for the neck. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do vampires, but unlike vampires, werewolves have an actual link to this family. 
Uh, Ale's only two generations removed from Grandpa Nightwolf. Uh, but I'm not necessarily looking to push that reading, uh, I, the animalistic or even the lycanthropic reading. This is a pretty straightforward scene for me. It's grisly but simple. Ale is faced with a foe whose magic is protecting him from edged weapons. And so he finds a way around the magical protection. When we yeah. boil it down to that, right, we're left with a motif that recurs throughout medieval Northern European literature. Right? We've seen it in sagas before this, but the most famous version is probably Beowulf and Grendel. I'm glad you're mentioning that. Yeah, yeah. I almost did. But. Yeah, I, think it, I think it needs to be. Uh, uh, Grendel is also protected from weapons by a strange magic, but Beowulf lucks into the solution to the puzzle by fighting Grendel barehanded. Ale's smarter than Beowulf, so he doesn't need luck. He just takes the bit between his teeth, so to speak, and defeats Otley's <laughs> magic with a brutally effective counter. Uh, well, the pun aside, well, <laughs> I, no, I I agree with you. Yeah, I don't. I, I think it's it's meant to be read as a clever solution to a difficult problem. Yeah. Um, Lawrence Deleuze, uh, who I think you've encountered before, he reads a little further into this episode, seeing it as a a gruesome parody, he says, of other episodes in the saga where Ale triumphs not through the use of his arms, but through his mouth. Just as he triumphed over uh. King Eric and Queen Gunhild through his poetry in York and over his father at the court of Ingvar back when he was only three years old, Deleuze suggests that Ale has always relied on his mouth to get him out of trouble. What do you make of that? Uh, I mean, look, I, I'm willing to give anyone the floor while they try a bit of dexterous literary analysis, but that doesn't mean I'm going to agree with the result. Uh, I think this is one of those occasions where I, I just can't smell what the estimable gentleman is cooking. <laughs> uh, I, I like the observation about Ale's mouth, but Ale's speech and his sharp teeth aren't connected here. Uh, in this, in the duel with Yacht before, uh, Ale ran his mouth quite a bit. And I could buy the idea that Ale's eloquence was a weapon in that duel, right? He's using his mouth to keep Yacht off guard. But Ale never says a word in this fight until after it's over. His skill in wordplay just isn't a factor here. So it feels like a stretch to connect biting out Otley's throat to speech making. Mm-hmm. I mean, would we say that Gisli Sursen, a ref the Sly's skill in craft making, is figured in their hands when they kill an enemy with a weapon? Uh, no, I don't think we'd say that. Right? Uh, the animal I think ferocity. Might. Of, what's that? I think Deleuze might. Well, it's possible. I mean, he's he's working on analogy here. Right? The but yeah. the animal ferocity of the bite. I'm willing to consider. I, I grant you that one. I do think there's a point there. Right? Ale's right on that line that separates his warrior self from his more monstrous aspects. But he does stay on that line. There's no unbridled rage, no pointless massacre of bystanders, uh, which has got to be a relief to the bystanders. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- but that isn't to say that Ale doesn't have a bit more aggression to work through. And fortunately for him and for the bystanders, there's this sacrificial bull just waiting for it. Uh. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We have this sudden and equally violent, almost unnecessarily aggressive sacrifice of the bull (laughs) where he grabs it by the nostrils in one hand and the horns in the other. And then he flips it over with such force that he breaks its neck. Had he gone over and slit the animal's throat, John, I don't think I would have even thought twice about it. But there's something unusual going on here. Jon Carl Helgeson sees the killing of Otley and the bull as parallel acts, and he's right that the manner of the killing is similar, which is why I bring it up. But, but then he goes on to talk about how the animalistic impulses of the audience are being recognized in this double killing, and how we are momentarily relieved of our humanity in this moment. Yeah, that, huh. that, for me, that's a bit much, but I get it. 
I'm more inclined to think that the awesomeness of Ael's act of sacrifice is simply meant to parallel the awesomeness of his killing of Atli. Hmm. This is about Ael's prowess as a warrior, one that we could even say is blessed by the gods if we want to take it in that direction. I don't, Ooh, but do you we could. Though? <laughs> I I don't, but you could. Yeah. In that regard, this whole sequence is a celebration of Ael's power, his prowess as a warrior, uh-huh. rather than a scene designed to make us question Ael's and, by extension, our own humanity. What say you, good sir? Yeah, blessed by the gods is maybe a little strong. Uh, I'm with you on that. And while I appreciate the point about the similarity between the two acts of violence, I really do think this is just a feat of strength moment. Uh, we often uh, see we're these. We're always the, on the same page, John. This is why we know, do a podcast together. Uh, we often see these in the sagas, right? When a warrior gets into a fighting rage. Now, I, I like Jon Helgeson's point that there's an animalistic impulse being recognized, but I see it as Ail's impulse. Right? This isn't about the audience. Uh, Ail's in berserk mode or close to it, but he's able to displace that energy in a moment of powerful excess. I see this as a triumphant moment for Ail. Right? He's finally mm. defeated the last of the men who tried to take his wife's inheritance, and he successfully sublimated his frenzy into a socially acceptable act of sacrificial vigor. For me, we're meant to see Ale here at the height of his power. He's ascendant over his enemies, and he's as close as he'll ever get to mastering himself as well. Mm. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, but however we choose to read this moment, Ail is happy with the outcome. As he should be. He acquires all the lands that he fought for and finally claimed Osgard's inheritance from her father. He then stays in Sonjafjord dealing with the particulars of property transfer until spring is nearly over, but he's happy. Right. right. And so when summer arrives, Ail prepares his ship and can set sail for Iceland. Finally, he's going home. Uh, he returns home to his farm in Iceland, a very wealthy man. Uh, presumably gives the good news to Oscar and then spends some years living lavishly, uh, staying out of other people's business for the most part and expanding his family. The uh, The saga doesn't actually specify when each of Ail's children is born, but we have to assume it happened before this. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's hard to say who was born when, but we do right. get a sense of their birth order. Yes, yeah. They, they, so um, the couple have two daughters, Thorgerd and Bera, and then after that, three sons, Balvar, Gunnar, and Thorsten. And all of them are promising and intelligent. What a surprise. Mm-hmm. And that is a happy place to stop if we wanted to stop here. Yeah. But I don't think we're done with Norway just yet. <laughs> no, we're not. Part 37. The Bear of the Hearth Seat returns. While Ale has enjoyed his time in Iceland... He's drawn back to Norway when he receives word that Arenbjorn had returned to his farms after Eric Bloodaxe was killed on a raid in Britain. King Haakon graciously granted Arenbjorn all of his lands and revenues that he had previously owned, which is pretty amazing. Well, you can't you can't just blast past the death of Eric Bloodaxe in this saga. Well, I mean, um, the author I mean, does. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, there's a complicated history involved in the circumstances of Eric's death, but... Uh, that would require some untangling of contradictory sources. Yes, and none would. of it's mentioned in Ale Saga, as you said, so we're going to just skip over it here in the interest of time. You know what, Joe? I, I don't know that we've ever done that before. Well, I mean, there's a huge opportunity here to make this episode several hours long. Well, I think the important point here is that we have to honor the wishes of the author, 
who clearly felt the death of Eric Bloodaxe was a <laughs> a mere blip, a coda to the story he was trying to tell. I guess so. Uh, so we go back to Ale. Uh, he learns that Queen Gunild and her sons had abandoned York after Eric's death. They're now in Denmark with her brother, uh, Harold Bluetooth. This uh, this sets up an eventual conflict between King Hauken and the future Harold Greycloak, who's the son of Gunild and Eric. And if we if we use this event to ground us in history, Andy, that uh, places us where? We're uh, in the mid-950s somewhere. Mm-hmm. Right? 954, yeah. 55, somewhere around there. Absolutely we are. And one more bit of news floats in. Uh, really late, I'm going to say. <laughs> King Athelstan <laughs> has also died, and England is now ruled by his brother Edmund. Uh-huh. And that puts us in the year of 939, at least in real time. In the year 939. That's right. Uh, so, you know, who knows what year the Ale Saga author thinks it is. It's either 939 uh, or it's uh, 954 or somewhere in between. Right. Or it's the square root of 27. It doesn't really matter what year it is, Andy. Arnbjorn is back in Norway and Ale is eager to see his BFF. Yeah. While Ale is eagerly packing his ship, Asgard has to be shaking her head, looking around the house at five kids and all the work to be done on a farm. What would you say you do here, Ale? <laughs> Look, Asgard, I already told you. I go to Norway and kill people for money. I have people skills. I'm good at killing people. Can't you understand that? What the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> Nicely done. Way to pick that up. But yeah, Ale doesn't care. He's on that ship quicker than a one-legged man in a butt-kicking contest. <laughs> Uh, now, among Ale's crew is a man named Onan Sioni, uh, the son of Ani from Annabreka. Okay. Uh, do we know Ani from Annabreka? Oh, you know Ani. <laughs> no, no, I don't. That's why I'm asking. We don't not really know. Uh, he was a follower of Scott Legrim. Uh, he was one of the crew that came over with Scott Legrim from Norway. Okay. He was only mentioned in passing as one of those men and one of the guys who got a portion of land in Borgafjord. Could, could I also ask, uh, why are we suddenly being introduced to his son? <laughs> well, because now he has a role to play in the saga. Right? Okay. Many episodes ago, we said that the men who were being settled around Borgafjord, some of them would become important later on, that we'd be seeing them much later in the saga, and now we've arrived. Okay. Uh, so here's an inter- interesting note about uh, Onan Sioni. Uh, the saga says, he was well built and the strongest man in the district. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. Good to have a well, one. Hang on, hang on. Not everyone agreed that he was not a shapeshifter. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> that is good old Saga Lytotis at its best, isn't it? Yes, indeed. Uh, so, uh, Ale and uh, Onand set sail for Norway. They have a smooth trip, soon arrive at Arambjörn's farm. The reunion is full of hugs and good feelings, I'm sure. Uh, and Ale gives his pal a beautiful decorated sail for his longship and several other fine gifts as a token of their continued friendship. Oh, it's a touching scene. It is. And the good times just keep on rolling right into the Yule season. And at the Yule feast, Armbjorn gives Ale a silk gown with ornate gold embroidery and gold buttons that was specially mm-hmm. cut for Ale's figure. Ale Scotla Grimson in a fine silk gown with gold buttons. I would kill to see that. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> I would too, yeah. And Ale is impressed. He even composes a poem about it. Oh, what a surprise. Uh, do we want this one? Really? <laughs> no. No. It just says that Arbjorn yeah. gave him a sexy silk gown and he's yep. achieved the stature of a king and he's very happy. Uh, I don't remember sexy. I don't recall that, that adjective. Well, you know, right. it doesn't say sexy that kind of directly, but I think uh, we can infer that it's a sexy silk gown. Yeah. I think uh, one thing that I want to just point out is that the gown was specially cut for Ale's figure. Right? That's yes. one of those occasional indications that we get that Ale, uh, that his his body is uh, unusual, right? That it's that there's something abnormal about the shape of him. Uh, and we've had references to that before, but it's he's just he's wider than most people. He's more muscular than most people, but it's also just there's something odd about him. Hmm. Uh, and that's something that the saga sort of is hinting at here and there. That's going to really come to fruition in the final chapters. So it's worth yeah. we're just noting that that's going on. He has to have clothes specially made for him now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, while he's swanning about in his uh, gold buttoned silk pajamas, uh, <laughs> uh, Ale is uh, having a pretty good time uh, and as happy and joyful as everything is leading up to and through the Yule season. Ale's mood begins to sour after the Yule feast. Mm. Sorrow is renewed, as they say. Exactly. Ale becomes so depressed that he stops speaking. Now, John, careful listeners and readers of this text should recognize a pattern at some point. Yeah. But Arambjorn is a, he's too caring. He loves his friend. And so he goes for the bait. Wait, wait, wait. I hope you're not implying that Ale is faking his depression. Not necessarily. I think Ale might slip into depressions, but mm-hmm. let's keep going. I'll, I'll address what I mean in a second. Okay, so Armbjorn asks if Ale is actually sick or if something else is bothering him. Which is a good question. Yeah. And indeed, something else is bothering him because Ale's never sick, John. It's <laughs> always something else. Uh-huh. Uh, Ale says, well, I'm not suffering from an ailment. I'm just anxious about how to claim the property I won when I killed Yot the Pale up north of Moor. See? Told you. Yep. I've heard that the king's agents have seized all the property and claimed it in King Hawkins' name. Could you <laughs> you assist me with recovering it? <laughs> See? And the hammer drops. Uh, the pattern is always the same. Yeah. Ale perceives some slight or is told he can't have something. He feels it's his by rights, and and then he pouts until he gets his way. Oh, pouts? This goes back to the very first time we ever met Ale when Scotlagrim told him to stay home from the feast at Ingvar's. Or when Thorolf was getting married, and he pretended to be sick, and then he went and killed some guy. Or when Thorolf got killed at the Bruneberg, and Ale sat there pouting mm. in King Athelstan's mead hall until he got the money he wanted. Pouting. Or any other time that Ale wants something just out of reach, like his wife. I I think pouting is a strong term here, or maybe a weak term here. Uh, he's absolutely, he's he's displeased. <laughs> he's upset. He's not pouting, though, huh? Uh, no. But no, I, I do think, I, I think what we see in Ale is a kind of combination, right? He's... He is upset by any slight that he perceives as uh, impinging on his honor. Mm-hmm. Right? And Ale, I think, has a very materialistic view of honor. His idea of what constitutes honor is getting what is yours. 
Yeah. Right? Getting the things, whether it's the the wife or the land or the wealth that that is yours by right. If you don't get that land, you have lost honor, regardless of what the odds are against you, regardless of how difficult it might be to claim it. It's an insult that you weren't able to claim it. You weren't able to have the thing that you want. Uh, and for him, that does tie into what I think is a what reads as a very real kind of emotional volatility. I mean, ale is given to bouts of depression, uh, but it's is it performative? Maybe. Uh, but I don't know that that means that it's not an actual feeling. Right. right. He's he recognizes that in his culture, keeping your keeping the pain inside is kind of what you do. Right. Pain on the inside. You don't show what you're feeling. That's not who Ale is. That's not no. what he does. Which is part uh, of the problem that he encounters in in the culture. Yes. yes he can't absolutely. contain what he's supposed to. Absolutely right. Yeah. And so I think for Ale, uh, he's you know, he's struggling in a culture that says it is it is the right thing to do to keep your feelings inside when Ale can't do anything but wear his heart on his sleeve. Mm-hmm. So it's that line of whether it's real or performative, I think is a very difficult line to establish. Yeah. Because for Ale, I think it's those two things are not separate. But he has such a hard time distinguishing when he should pursue these things and, and when he should just maybe maybe let it go. I think yeah. uh, Hauken told him earlier, you're a wealthy man. Go back to Iceland right. and right. enjoy what you have there. Why are you messing around over here right. where we hate you <laughs> and want to kill you? Right, that's, that's actually Which, good advice from. It was Hauke. excellent advice, uh, yeah. and if Ale, you know, weren't who he is, he might accept that advice. Yeah, uh, and even maybe leave on good terms with Halkin. Right? Uh, yeah, but he's Ale, right? He he doesn't understand a distinction between the things that are his and the esteem that is his. Right, uh, and so for him, it's ultimately. To have lost this land is to have lost a sense of pride in himself. Mm -hmm. And so right now, seeing no way forward to claim this land, he, in a somewhat childlike way, perceives that as a personal affront. Yeah. Well, and 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 he's the kind of guy. He's the kind of guy that goes through life constantly. He's got this tally sheet. He's got a score sheet of. Right. Where what's his and what's someone else, and and he's constantly trying to balance the sheet, right. and he's yep. constantly he's also seeing himself come up short quite often, uh, because <laughs> of the powers of of authority. Right. So the question is, if you're Ale's friend, what can you do to help him out of what you at this point have to recognize as yeah. a behavior pattern? Well, I mean, Aaron Bjorn, he's gone to bat for Ale many times in the past, but uh, in this particular instance, he's hesitant to help because, as he says, the king's palace is an easy place to enter, but a hard place to leave. My friendship with King Haukon is only very recent, Ale. Yeah, that's, that's understating it. <laughs> but I, I must do as the old saying has it. Tend the oak if you want to live under it. So that implies that he shouldn't help Ale quite right yeah he should not but ale's not gonna have that right he insists on going to see the king of course he does that doesn't make it a good idea <laughs> to do this is risking everything for yeah. Arnbjorn. and yeah. he, Arnbjorn says 
I don't expect there's much chance of reconciling your temper and rashness with the king's disposition and severity, because I don't think he's a friend of yours, Ale, or feels any reason to be either. Mm-hmm. And despite his better judgment, Arenbjorn foolishly agrees to approach the king on Ale's behalf. You is it that foolish though? Because he does stipulate that Ale has to remain behind in Fjordina. I think he's not about to escort Ale to the king's presence. I think that is intelligent. Armbjorn's yeah. a thinker. He's smart yeah. to leave Ale behind. But to even go to Halkin's court under the circumstances... Remember, Armbjorn is a guy who fought with Eric Bloodaxe. Left with Eric Bloodaxe. He's not Halkin's friend. And Halkin right. knows that. Yeah. It's a tenuous relationship that they have. So going to Halkin and asking for something that he knows Halkin doesn't want to yield to, is mm. that's foolish in my opinion. But he loves his friend and he's loyal and he represents all that is good in in this society as the author sure. sees it. Sure. So the visit with Hauken goes more or less as you might expect. Yeah. He explains the situation and then he asks the king to give Ale the property taken from Ljolt the Pale. Yeah, Hauken does not respond immediately. Uh, and when he finally does, he says, I don't understand why you're presenting such a claim on Ale's behalf. He came to see me once, and I told him then that I didn't want him staying in this country for reasons that you are well aware of. This is going great. <laughs> and I'll tell you one thing, Anbjorn. You may only stay in this country on the condition that you do not value foreigners more highly than myself or my words. I know that your loyalty lies with your foster son, my nephew, Harold Erickson. Mm. The best course for you would be to go abroad and stay with him and his brothers. Because I have a strong suspicion that men like you will prove unreliable if a confrontation arises between me and Eric's sons. Mm. So, uh, yeah, that went poorly. Yeah, it's about as bad as it could have, honestly. Well, I mean, King Haugen could have Arnbjorn arrested or killed. So he's at least offering him a way out. Fair. And Armbjorn is forced to retreat to return home and give Ale the bad news. Not only will the king not grant Ale the lands from Ljot the Pale, he's made it abundantly clear that it would be mm. best if both Ale and Armbjorn left Norway as soon as possible. Yeah, and Ale doesn't take that news well. But as far as Ale's concerned... He's just been robbed of a great sum of money that was his by right. What adult? Get back to Iceland, Hale. What are you now, doing? Now, come on. Let's or a fierce and independent spirit unwilling to bow to a king's abuse of power. Well, fair enough. That's that's <laughs> one of the themes we brought up on in previous episodes. But still, so John. by your own petard. When you see how Ale behaves, he hardly cuts the figure of, an, of a sympathetic hero. No, that's fair. I mean, it's, you know... It's it, it does. It, he is a difficult person to work with in circumstances like this. <laughs> he really is, uh, which maybe is, you know, how everyone views yeah. Icelanders at this time. Well, <laughs> that's fair. Uh, it's, we're going to have tremendous fun dissecting this character when we finally get the judgments. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we're not that far off now, John. We're not far True. at all. Uh, by the end of the year, we'll have it done. But oh, as for Ale and his pouting, Arnbjorn solves the problem a few days later when he approaches his buddy with a huge chest full of silver. And he explains, 
I'm paying you this money for the lands owned by Lyot the Pale Ale. It seems fair to me to let you have this reward from my kinsman Frithgair and myself for having saved his life from Lyot. I know you did it as a favor to me, and it's my duty to make sure you're not deprived of what is yours by law. You big you know, fat that's, baby. That's how you deal with ale. That's what the doctor ordered. Uh-huh. It's also, by the way, a fair statement. Right? We know that the reason ale helped Fridgear was not because he thought Fridgear was a particularly decent guy, but because of the family's relationship to Ironbeard. Yeah. Uh, so, but, well, so hold on Ironbeard now. is now what showing just that happened? he recognizes that gratitude. What had just happened uh, before that? Which part? The part where Ale went to York and Arnbjorn oh, saved yes. his well, neck. Oh, yes. Well, fair enough. So, but, but this is and, how and this relationship Ar- works. Hold on. This now. is the friendship, right? This is the reciprocal gift giving of this culture. You know what the you reciprocal are constantly was? constantly giving friendship back John. to each other through honor, through gifts, through favors. This I is mean, how the culture works. You're absolutely right. In the same In the same way that feud works, right? The killing is this endless cycle, right. right? So the same thing with gift giving, I guess, works. It would be small-minded to start counting up who owes who more. I would. Right? I'll, the I'll, open-handedness I'll do is the point. I'm going to be small-minded, and I'm going to tell you that well, Ale owes a lot more to Arnbjorn than Arnbjorn owes to Ale. Small-minded for the very first time in our experience, Andy. <laughs> uh, Ale uh, is compensated essentially he is. for for demonstrating his friendship with Armbjorn through his treatment of Fridgir. That's true, but his poem uh, did say the sword play was fun enough. I'm good. Right, it was enough of a reward. Right, fair enough. Uh, but yeah. nevertheless, he has been rewarded. And with his chest full of 40 marks of silver, Ale regains his spirits and starts uh, behaving happily again. <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> Part 38, the Frisian Raid. 38. Yep. Oh, man. When spring arrives, Arnbjorn announces that he wants to go raiding because he's a Viking. He prepares three of his best longships and sets sail with a crew of 300 men. 300? No, no doubt. Yeah. If you if you were wondering how powerful Arnbjorn is, now you know. Yep. Uh, and, of course, uh, Ale comes along with him, uh, manning one of the ships with a troop of his own men from Iceland. And they, they sail south along the coast, pointing their ships towards Saxony on the continent. And that's where they spend the summer, raiding offshore and having a grand old time. Of course. In the autumn, though, they need to turn their ships. Uh, they go west, actually, and sail towards Frisia for one last raid. One night, when the weather was calm, they anchored their ships in a large estuary near some great rolling plains. It had been raining recently, we're told, and the fields were wet. Right, so they, they, they needed to figure out where they are and what's going on. So leaving one-third of the men behind to guard the ships, they set off to explore the land. And following a river, they soon discover a farming village. And of course, as soon as the farmers spot a band of Viking raiders, they flee into the woods, running for their lives. Yeah, but the Vikings give chase, and soon they find another village, and the farmers flee. And then they find another village, and the farmers flee. So in each case, the villagers (laughs) attempt to flee, and the Vikings chase after them. And this leads the Viking band farther and farther inland, drawing them further and further away from their ships. 
many of the villagers managed to escape into the forest during these raids. I think this is really one of those moments when we see what the Vikings look like to others. Right? We're used to thinking of Arnbjorn in the story as a noble, good-hearted man, Ale as a loyal figure and a protagonist. Uh, but here we really mm. kind of see them as figures of horror. Right? They're terrifying to these Frisians. Uh, but yeah. as the Vikings continue to raid, the number of villagers in the forest begins to swell. And once they collect more than 300 men, the Frisian villagers can decide to confront the Vikings and defend their land. Good for the Frisians. Well, That's wonderful. Well, except it doesn't go so well. Well, I'm not surprised. They are Frisian farmers. Yeah, I mean, they, they split ranks and the Frisians are quickly on the run again, being chased by Vikings. What a mess. So Ale and a small band of men go rushing after a larger band of Frisians. The Frisians flee all the way to where a large ditch full of water divided one field from the next. There is a small bridge over the ditch with the, which the Frisians immediately run across. And once they get to the other side, they pull the bridge over to their side, separating themselves from Ale and his Viking friends. Well, that's just good tactics. Uh, but Ale is not so easily deterred. He takes one look at the ditch and then makes a running leap clear across to the other side. Now, that's the stuff of a good hero. <laughs> this is where Ail's in his sweet spot. Yep. And, and just imagine as he's leaping over this thing, right? And they're like, he's not going to make it. He's not going to make <laughs> Oh, the Frisians must have been crapping themselves. Right. Well, at first, uh, but then they, they see Ail's companions sizing up the jump and uh, none of them can do it. <laughs> in fact, <laughs> none of them even try. Which kind of leaves Ale standing there on the other side of the ditch all by himself, surrounded by Frisians. Right. Whose turn is it to crap now? <laughs> right. So there's 11 Frisians around him and they immediately attack Ale. Uh, in a fierce fight, he's able to sort of fight them off and he eventually actually manages to kill them all. Oh, those poor farmers. Yeah. Right? But, John, this is good for the body count. I think we're going to have right. a good number on this one. Oh, oh you think? Uh, now, <laughs> yes, I do. Once that batch of Frisians are all dead, Ale grabs the bridge, shoves it back into place, and then runs back over to his men. No doubt uh, shaking his head in embarrassment at the lack of their big ups. I'm sorry, their what? Their big ups. You know, the Vikings couldn't, you know, jump. I don't. Well, you know what they say, Vikings can't jump. Is that what they say? Well, the you know, that's that's what I've heard. That's, uh, that's the word on the street. Uh, okay. In the meantime, the rest of the earthbound Vikings on this raid have finished their plundering and are already back at the ships. Uh -huh. Some of them are slaughtering the cattle, others are ferrying booty out to the ships, and still others are now gathering around a shield wall protecting the uh, the looters from uh, an approaching army of Frisian defenders. That is uh, good for them. Not These happy to Frisians see all this just going don't on. give up. Well, uh, tell that to Hulak, John. Oh. That's a that's a Beowulf joke. The Frisians oh. are firing arrows at the Vikings when suddenly another troop of Frisians arrives to support the defense. So the Vikings are pretty vastly outnumbered here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but by the time the Frisians organize themselves, the ships are basically loaded and ready to go. And that's when Ale pops out of the forest <laughs> and sees what's happening on the shore. Not yeah, good it's time. Not, yeah, no, it's not a great situation. Um Ail and his men are just, they're on the wrong side of the war, right? The, the wrong side of this battle. Uh, but he doesn't flinch. He throws his shield over his back, grabs his kessia, and rushes toward the Frisians at full speed. 
As he approaches, he's lunging out like a madman with his Kessia, and the Frisians jump back in fear. The the mass of Frisian fighters parts like the Red Sea, and uh, Moses Scott Legrimson leads his men through the column to the safety of the ships. <laughs> and just like that, Ale and his men and all the Vikings are in the ships and rowing away to safety. Yeah, that's that's got to be killer for the Frisians. They got to be so frustrated. Oh God, yeah. I imagine several of them just like snap their fingers and they say, "We almost had them." Yeah. But quietly, so that Ale doesn't hear and decide to come back. <laughs> That's true. He uh, does have a reputation for returning. Yeah. No, this this kind of this, but this bitterness might explain why Frisians are so cold to outsiders. Oh, is that right? Are Frisians not the friendliest people? Well, I'm just basing it on other uh, northern literature from around this era. Uh, I'm not saying they are cold. They just appear cold to non-Frisians. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Ale. You've ruined a whole nation of people with your raids. <laughs> no, no. It's just a it's just a stereotype among the uh, the Anglo-Scandinavians. I'm sure the Frisians are quite warm and welcoming people if you don't show uh-huh. up with axes. Well, my only exposure to the Frisians is from a clip of Eddie Izzard uh, in Mongrel Nation where he's, he's trying to buy a brown cow from a Frisian farmer by speaking Old English. <laughs> And did Have the, you ever seen how that? did that end up? Did the farmer flee into the woods? No, no. But uh, he didn't fully understand Izzard's uh, kind of sloppy old English. But, uh, <laughs> you know, they, he understood he wanted a brown cow for something. Ich will a wogen and a brune koe. A brune koe? A brune koe. A brune koe. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Brune koe. Oh, well, that's lovely. <laughs> uh, uh, well, once they're uh, safely away from the shores of Frisia... And the corpses of all the poor Brunkus they slaughtered on shores. Uh, Ail and Arnbjorn gathered their men to make plans. Yes. So Arnbjorn has seen the writing on the wall in Norway. So he's uh, not going back. Yeah. He's heading to Denmark, where Eric Bloodaxe's sons are gathering large armies. Yeah, the only place likely to be more dangerous for Ail than Norway is probably Denmark. Because uh, remember we said Gunnald is there now. So he's not all that keen to join Arnbjorn on that journey. Instead, he decides to head back to Norway, gather his things, and then head home for Iceland. Now, since it's too late to set sail for Iceland, he ends up staying with Thorsten Thorsen for a winter of feasting and fun. Oh, uh, lovely. I'd say all in all, this journey ended quite well for Ale. Well, nobody else owes him property, so it's a good deal. <laughs> Oh, and uh, John, what about Onan Sioni, the the guy who was probably not not a shapeshifter? Uh-huh. Wasn't he supposed to be part of the story? Why did we? Oh, no. He's been him? here the whole time. He's been along with him. He loved killing himself some Frisians. Uh, didn't you see him in the background? He had a couple of close ups. It's funny. I mean, I I, I must have missed him in there. Yeah, I don't remember. Well, he was there. I assure you. He uh-huh. saw you. Uh, <laughs> Did he now? Yeah. No, he'll be the... he'll be uh, Onan will be more involved next time we meet. Uh, for now, just know he's there, and uh, okay. we'll leave Ale and Onan the not not a shapeshifter feasting the winter away with Thorsten and Vik. Excellent. Well, that was a fun one. It's a lot of action, just as promised. Uh, before we go, John, I see you've got the uh, much neglected listener rune sack there by your side. Uh, yep. Have we got time for a couple of questions this one? So we're uh, sticking with that name, huh? Well, we voted on it, so I mean, what are we supposed to do? I, I thought that was a temporary thing. No, no, the electoral college, you know, and all that, so it's uh-huh. permanent. Yeah, we're stuck with it. Yeah. 
But let's put it this way. If we did disband the uh-huh. rune sack name, we would we'd have to come up with another name for it first. Well, listener rune sack it is then. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, just yes. let me uh, dip in here. So while you're rooting around in there, uh, I actually do have one uh, already. Kenneth okay. Lawrence contacted us to say... Oh, hi, uh, Kenneth. Yeah, hi, Kenneth. Uh, he wrote in to let us know that Njal Saga is now available on Audible, John. So you can listen to the saga for yourself. Oh, very cool. Who's reading it? Uh, I think it's uh, Gunnar Calvary. Cool. Uh, so out of curiosity, how long is it? Oh, it's uh, it's only 13 hours. Can you believe it? 13, <laughs> 13, 13 hours. hours. Yeah. What? Which means we officially took longer to explain the story than it takes to read the whole thing out loud. That's it, right. It really would have been faster if we just recited the whole saga. I'm afraid so, but uh, what memories, John? Just think yeah, of sure. all the fun we okay. had. A small consolation for our listeners, I'm afraid. All right, so here we go. Uh, here's a question from Duncan Tilly. Hi, Duncan. Uh, Duncan writes, Hi, guys. I've been re-listening to Gisley's saga late- recently and uh, had an interesting idea about a possible interpretation for the dreams uh, or the fear of the dark that both uh, Gisley and Greta experienced. Something they share in common is that they're both outlaws that stay in Iceland, on the run, so to speak, and I thought the dreams could be their paranoia manifesting. They both seem to get worse the longer they're on the run, and the fact that mainly is related to darkness or nighttime could be because of the vulnerability of being unable to see. I doubt the author intended it this way, but I thought it was an interesting way to look at it. Mm -hmm. As always, keep up the good work. I look forward to every episode. Well, thanks, Duncan. Thank you, Duncan. That's great. Yeah. You make an excellent point, Duncan. Certainly an outlaw hiding in the wilds of Iceland is going to experience both darkness and paranoia in their most extreme forms. Uh, And I don't think you have to be an expert in psychoanalysis to construct a believable reading about either Grettir or Gisli that taps into the connection between the darkness that they experience and the psychological vulnerability that they feel. Right. Gisli, remember, uh, dreams about versions of his future as well. Yeah, sure. Uh, This is his mind spinning out of control as he maybe weighs the potential outcomes of his situation. And Grettir is increasingly lonely and paranoid, which makes him fear the darkness. In each case, the darkness forces the outlaw into complete and utter aloneness. The darkness separates them from the world, leaving them with only their own consciousness. And for Grettir especially, this kind of frightening confrontation with the self is unbearable. So, yes, yes, I absolutely agree with your interpretation. Write it up and have it on my desk before class on Tuesday. I think you'll get a good grade. <laughs> See? Write into us and get homework. Uh, now, I've got a message here from uh, Morgan Myers as well. Hello, Morgan. Uh, Morgan, hey, Morgan writes, I could, I could have sworn I've read at some point about a fire, an intentional one, on a longship during travel in one of the sagas. And someone else in a Facebook group also also remembered something similar. I haven't seen anything really that could be used as a brazier for many ship burials, although thin metal or a clay stone construction might not have survived or been recorded. Anyway, is this some kind of extraordinarily niche Mandela effect, or do you know of a saga reference or other reference we both stumbled across to intentional fires on a ship? Thank you. What's a Mandela effect, John? The Mandela effect is uh, a commonly believed false truth. It's, okay. it's named because of a persistent urban myth that Nelson Mandela died in prison in the 1980s. Oh, okay. So it's actually named after Nelson Mandela. 
I, a, well, I was aware of that a, part right. of it. So it's, but so it's a, uh, so it's it's something like the belief that uh, Hamlet says, uh, "Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him well, Horatio. Horatio. Yeah, I knew him well, Horatio. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's uh, the, the grave digger uh, that says something, or or uh, Luke, I am your father, or uh, oh, play it again, Sam. Right? Play it again, Sam is probably the best example of this. Play it again, Sam. Okay, because he never says that in the movie. Uh-huh. He says, "You played it for me. For her, you can play it for me. Play it, Sam." Well, I'm sure Nelson Mandela must be really proud. There you go. So that's 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 the not, that's what the Mandela effect is. Okay. Well, before we answer this, I'm calling niche Mandela effect for my '90s emo band. Uh, that, that's that's <laughs> our right. name now. You enjoy that, uh, Morgan? <laughs> I went through my notes on various sagas. I I couldn't find a reference to cooking on a ship, but. Like you, I'm pretty sure I remember a reference to it somewhere. Uh, cooking on wooden ships was absolutely something people have done historically. And by the time you get to, say, the whaling era in the sort of uh, the early modern world, there are entire brick triworks being constructed on ships that are being used to render whale oil. Uh, so you have to assume that that doesn't come out of nowhere. Uh, I poked around for a bit. And what I can tell you for sure is there doesn't seem to be any real consensus about this among people who know about this sort of thing. We know there's never been any evidence found of brick or earth fire pits on ships in the period. But as you suggested, there's so little archaeological evidence of ships in general. I don't think we can take the absence of evidence as final. Yeah, well, it's been suggested that the dangers of a cooking fire on a nor would have made it undesirable. Mm-hmm. Especially since ships were often not far from land. So pulling into the beach for a bit of uh, a luau wouldn't have been terribly <laughs> difficult. And I think sure. that's a lot of times what they did. Yeah. So luau. Okay. Yeah, luau. Um, you know, a little pig yeah. and roast yeah, it up, sure. a little dancing. Uh, but I think, but sea voyages would be a different story, right? It's not inconceivable that it would have been attempted. Why? Um, well, I mean, they have they uh, have dried fish. They have right. other things that they can eat. Why would they risk setting their boat on that. fire? Right, they're familiar with the need for uh, transportable foods for a long voyage, uh, yeah. and the conditions on a ship, the the wetness, the pitching of the ship, and so on. It means that it would have been a real challenge to get a cooking fire going and keep it safely running. I think keep it safely running is the key yeah. there, right? But but that's not the question Morgan's asking. Is there saga evidence for this? Right, sagas are not necessarily answerable to the historical reality. Right. Uh, and the answer there is, not that I can find off the top of my head, no. Uh, and if somebody knows differently, let us know. Now, I should say that my knowledge base, I think both of our knowledge bases outside of the family sagas is more limited than in the family sagas, especially when it comes to, say, the Fernaldo Sogar. Uh, so if there's anything like that, I wouldn't be shocked to find it there, right, in the more inventive kind of stories. Uh, so please, if somebody knows about a cookout on a Viking ship, let us know. Uh, and uh, here's a smooth transition. How would they let us know, Andy? <laughs> well, they could contact us on Twitter at Saga Thing Pod or Facebook at Saga Thing Podcast. We are also on Instagram, Saga Thing Podcast there. And uh, we have email, John, email, SagaThingPodcast at gmail.com. I think that's everything. Excellent. And they can also try breaking a sacrificial bull in half, writing a message in the gory remains and trusting that the gods will be so pleased with your sacrifice that they'll drop by and let us know what you wanted to say. Well, that's a new gross low for you, John. I'm sorry, Andy. I can't hear you. Try uh, try writing it in bull's blood. All right. We will be back soon with yet another episode of Ale Saga. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Bye for now.
Otley is actually pleased by this right. development. You took the words right out of my mouth. I have plenty of grounds for taking vengeance on you, Ale. You've killed my two brothers, and I would be... I'm starting to absorb your accent You, a you bit. did, didn't you? You're, you're starting, starting to sound I get around a little bit like People me. with accents, and I can't help right. but start to sound like this. You, you sound like me after I've had a couple of espressos. <laughs> speeding up a little bit. 